Welcome to the St. Andrew Sunday Morning Sermon Podcast. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you believe, or whether you even believe at all, you belong here. Beloved, our reading this week comes again from the book of James as we continue our sermon series, our sermon series on this epistle. This week's reading from James uses detailed imagery, the bit in a horse's mouth, the rudder of a ship, a spring of water, which all point towards a need for self-control or slow speaking, especially for those who aspire to become teachers. Now, logically, the argument can be a tickle hard to follow. You'll notice how the text this morning harkens back to previous chapters and themes consistent with the practical nature of James, declaring the hypocrisy of a faith that is spoken but not backed up with action. What comes out of our mouth, the words that we use and choose, reflect our character, plain and simple. But James doesn't leave us there. In verses 15 through 18, the author shifts the focus to wisdom, contrasting two different kinds of wisdom with very different outcomes. In James's worldview, where the community is likely under threat, there is only one choice, a choice between earthly wisdom and a wisdom from above. James lays his heaviest emphasis on peace and peacemaking. His advice is unequivocal, echoing the Sermon on the Mount, lifting up, quote, those who make peace. Perhaps a question for us to consider is what does wisdom, wisdom that comes from God, encourage us to do? Hear now these words from the epistle of James, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and verses 13 through 18. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, for you know that we who teach will face stricter judgment. For all of us make many mistakes. Anyone who makes no mistakes in speaking is mature, able to keep the whole body in check with the bridle. If we put bits in the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we guide their whole bodies. Or look at ships, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, yet they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great exploits. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Who is wise but knowledgeable among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness, born of wisdom, But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be arrogant and lie about the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, devilish. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there will also be disorder and wickedness of every kind. But the wisdom from above 
is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without a trace of partiality or hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. May God add a blessing to the reading of this word. Let's sing together. For all the strides we made, for all our blessings, we've fallen far away from truth. Turning our face away from this hurting race, we turned our face away from you. We want to be your hands, your feet. Without words, we'll let our actions speak. So here we If you've been following along in the sermon series on this letter of James, you probably have recognized that there's something so satisfying about the letter because it tends to just get right to the point. In, in the letter of James, you don't, you don't get a lot of beating around the bush, a lot of nuance or subtlety. What you get is a lot of do this and don't do that. And I have to admit, that's pretty refreshing, isn't it? I mean, to just have somebody tell it like it is. I think that's why we get so many of these memorable one-liners from a relatively short book in the Bible. James is a, a master at boiling down this, this wisdom into little bumper, stickery, moralistic mantras like, be doers of the word and not merely hearers. Draw near to God and God will draw near to you. Or the most famous, I think, is faith without works is dead. Or take this little pearl of wisdom from today's reading. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, and the tongue is a fire. Why is this such a, a memorable and effective line? I think probably because, A, we all know how quickly a fire can spread in the forest. B, 
We all know what it's like to really burn somebody with our words. And C, we all know, as Smokey Bear teaches us, that only you can prevent wildfires, right? Years ago, the author Luann Brizendine wrote a book titled The Female Brain. In the book, she, she made a controversial claim that women, on average, use about 20,000 words a day as opposed to men who only use about 7,000 words a day. And I know what you're thinking, is he really going to go there right now? <laughs> Brizendine got a lot of pushback uh, about this claim. And critics called it, uh, that it, is it lacked scientific evidence. They said it just perpetuated this cultural gender stereotype that women are just more talkative than men. So I was curious. I asked Lori what she thought. I said, you know, is it possible really that women can use more than twice as many words as men? And Lori said, it's not only possible, it's highly likely. And I said, what? Really? And she said, yeah. Women probably talk twice as much as men because when they're talking to men, they always have to repeat themselves. <laughs> and I said, what? <laughs> of all the words that we speak, of all the words we speak in a given day, how many of our words are carefully and thoughtfully and especially faithfully chosen. James begins his teaching this morning with a warning to anybody who occupies a position of authority or influence in sort of a teaching, preaching, leadership mode. And he says, not many of you should become teachers, for we who teach will face stricter judgment. And by teachers here, he's referring to those specifically in the Christian community who teach or instruct matters of doctrine and faith in Christ. And there's always been, as we know, throughout the history of Christianity, there's always been this abiding concern that there might be false teachers among us who are leading the sheep astray. The assumption, I guess, is that for preachers, you know, the stakes are pretty high, right? Um, I mean, you get a lot of souls depending upon your teaching, and one little false doctrine could have eternal consequences. I understand this as a pastor. I take my role as a, as a preacher and a teacher with, with great seriousness. In fact, I've committed my whole life to teaching the Bible in ways that are life-giving, that are consistent with what I believe is God's vision and God's intention for humanity. And that vision is one that is radically inclusive, that is generative and redeeming for all people. It's a message that is completely absent of hatred, judgmentalism, and exclusion. And for that, would you believe, there are times where some folks call me a false teacher. I get a lot of emails, often the ugliest, most unchristian, and even threatening emails are from Christians who accuse me of being a false teacher because I preach a mostly un 
nuanced message of full inclusion. And these emails are super harsh. They say, I don't know the Bible. They say, I've been deceived. They say, I'm leading people away from God's word. Those are the nicer ones, by the way. Mostly what they're saying is, I'm not playing on Team Jesus, or that um, I'm bad for business, or that I'll be judged by God for leading people astray. After I preached this uh, sermon at nine o'clock, people said, I feel so badly for you. I said, no, I, I consume this like my morning coffee. <laughs> it gets me out of bed every day, truly. This is why we do what we do, because so few are doing it. The letter of James, it turns out, is absolutely right. Our words matter. They have a lasting, life-changing impact on people. To say to someone, you are welcome, and you're included, and you're loved by me, by all of us, and especially by God, that has, that has life-changing, global, cosmic impact. I mean, I've seen it. It saves people's lives. So when James says, not many of you should become teachers, for we all will face stricter judgment, maybe he's actually not talking about God's judgment, but about the judgment of others who get uncomfortable whenever, whenever truth is spoken in love. This is why I'm convinced that this is a passage that's not intended strictly for preachers or teachers, for churchy people. I think it's, I think it's for everyone, all of you. Guides, mentors, models in our communities, in our schools, in our workplaces. Whether you're a grandparent or a parent, a CEO, a firefighter, a police officer, a politician, a lawyer, a nurse, a stay-at-home mom or dad, Mm. This is for you. It's a reminder that you are a model of this radical Jesus kind of love. That's why our words really matter. And so James says the tongue, it's a source of both power and peril. It has the power to heal, it has the power to hurt. It has the power to save and the power to condemn. We know this, our words can light up a room when we walk in or they can scorch the earth and everyone in it. And often we don't know exactly what our words do once we speak them. The impact they have for good or ill, we can't be certain how our words will be heard. This happens often to me. Sometimes I'll preach a sermon. Later somebody will come up and remark about something I said. It could be days, weeks, months later. And they, they said, you know, I remember that you, what you said struck a deep chord. It, it had impact. And like, it was almost like you were just speaking right to me. How did you know? And then they'll go in and they'll quote a line that I preached in a sermon. In fact, they will quote it verbatim. And the whole time I'm thinking, I didn't say that. I wish I had said it. It's good. In fact, I'm going to write it down and use it later. But I didn't say it. Because sometimes, you know, God gets involved. And God 
It just fills in the gaps between the words so that what we say is far more wonderful than anything we could have come up on our own. Something happens in the speaking of words, but it works both ways, says James. He says, if you do enough talking, you will eventually open yourself up to a lot of mistakes. Sometimes you'll mess up. I'm exhibit A. It happens a lot. In fact, in my very first church, I I did a children's sermon as part of the service. This was a little startup church. We were in an industrial building. I'm not kidding. We had more kids than we had adults. So I had to do something with these kids, and so I, we did a children's sermon. And part of the sermon was a little box. The kids take home the box. They put something in it, usually coached by mom or dad. Sometimes uh, not something I really wanted to see in the box, but they would bring it back the next week, and I'd talk about it, try to make a spiritual connection. It was a stump-the-pastor kind of moment. On Easter morning, one Sunday, I got a live very angry bunny. Oh, that's the kind of games that these people played on me. But one kid on a Sunday morning brought a toy ship. And that was like a softball on a tee. I mean, I was on my A game, and I immediately pointed to the ship and the rudder, and I said, this right here, this is what makes the ship steer. And you can't captain a ship if you don't have a rudder. And they were looking at me with this breathless curiosity, and it was like they were right in the palm of my hand. I was brilliant. (laughs) Only I had no idea that I never said the word rudder. Uh, My head was saying rudder, but my lips had dropped the all-important R, And what I was trying to tell these now suddenly very confused kids is that every ship needs a good udder. (laughs) That's a true story. That's why James says not many of you should become teachers. (laughs) James believes, as you heard Reverend Jerry share in the introduction to the scripture, James believes that you can tell if we are uh, of, of a wisdom born of God by our speech, how we talk to each other and about each other. Be quick to listen and slow to speak, he says elsewhere in his letter, especially when you are angry, which is the opposite of what our um, instincts tell us we should do. Try it. Be quick to listen and slow to speak. You will lose every argument you ever have. You'll lose it because in the world, uh, we're supposed to rush right to the first word and to have the last word and somewhere in between to make a very emphatic point. That's the way the world plays. And James says, that's not how we play. For some background, he's writing this letter to a bunch of little churches in and around Jerusalem. His teaching here is what we might call family talk, uh, rules that we use around the house, right? And maybe James understands that in too many churches even today, when Christians get together and do church, there's a pretty good chance that a fight will break out. You ever notice that? Why? 
Maybe it's because people love each other. And when you go to church, love is in the air and you're supposed to, you're supposed to embody that love and you get close to people and we know the closer you get to them, the deeper the pain can be when you have a problem. But also I think it's because when people get together at church, they're very passionate. They're passionate about their faith, their experience in life, their politics, their relationships. And so James says, we got to have a, a talk about how we have talks. J- James draws on the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. This is a, a radical statement that Jesus makes in the Sermon on the Mount. I love the message translation, which I'll read. He says, Jesus says, you're familiar with the command, do not murder, but I'm telling you that anyone who is so much as angry with a brother or sister is guilty of murder. And carelessly call a brother idiot, and you just might find yourself hauled into court. Thoughtlessly yell stupid at a sister, and you're on the brink of hellfire. The simple moral fact is that words kill. Because there's so much power in our words, it's, it's important that we practice truthful speech. How great a forest is set ablaze by a small fire. The entire community can be reduced to smoldering ash. <laughs> Whenever we say things like, hey, um, did you hear about what happened to so-and-so? Or, now look, I normally wouldn't breathe a word of this, but did you just hear what so-and-so did? Rumors and gossip, innuendo, misinformation. It's like starting little fires everywhere. and Most often, we don't even know the impact of the hurt that we have done. So how do we ensure that our speech to others and about others is holy and just? How can we create with our words more light and a little less heat? Maybe we can ask ourselves three simple questions. The first of which is, is this truthful? Is what I'm saying right now the truth? Not only in fact, but is it objectively true? Not only do I have a complete story, but am I unbiased in my perception? Is there more to the story that I just don't understand or know? Psychologist and Jesuit priest Anthony DeMello, great writer, he told the story of these two professional, highly distinguished taxidermists who were walking by admiring in a window of a taxidermy shop the uh, owl. And uh, as experts in the field, they are uh, analyzing the work of some taxidermist on this owl. And one of them says, well, the, the eyes, they're just not, not natural. And the wings, they're not proportionate to the body, the feet. Oh, my, the feet. What's... And just as they were satisfied with their critical analysis of somebody else's work, and as they turned to walk away, that's when the owl turned its head and, and blinked. <laughs> we don't always know for sure what's true. Has... Anybody ever said to you, ever, something confronting you in anger over something that you never said, but something that was totally misconstrued or misunderstood? Has anybody ever spread a rumor or false information about you that that hurt deeply, that wasn't true? 
It's happened to all of us. And that is an experience of, of, of getting robbed of something that you may never quite get back. You remember the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. We forget about those last three words. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This is a, an ancient reminder that the words that we use against each other and about each other have the power to imperil or destroy or impair your relationships with others. And when that happens, we have a simple little word to describe it. That word's called sin. Sin, at the end of the day, sin is an impaired relationship with others, with God. And so we ask ourselves, is this truthful? But even if it's truthful, it's still perhaps our words have the power to hurt. And so we ask the question, is it generous? Even if it's true, what effect will my words have on the one to whom or about whom I am speaking? How did Oscar Wilde put it? If you can't say anything good about someone, come over here and sit with me. Right? James says, don't be that guy. We can all think of people who are constant critics, people who never praise anyone, people who know all the, the skinny on all the people, all the gossip. And they're often the most lonely people in the world. Not just because people don't like people like that, but really because their judgments about others are most often a reflection of the judgments they've made about themselves. The wrongs we see in others, almost always the wrongs we see in us. And so C.S. Lewis says, praise is inner health made audible. Praise is inner health made audible, which makes criticism <laughs> bad inner health audible. Is it generous? Is it life-giving, what I'm about to say? Jesus taught us that we ought to love in a very unique way. He said, love one another as I've loved you. And this was a, a, a transcendence of what was commonly understood as the golden rule. Love one another as you want to be loved. And Jesus, in transcending this rule, he understood that that kind of love is self-referenced and self-motivated. And so we ought to practice a higher kind of love. Instead of the golden rule, he gave us the titanium rule, the strongest rule of all. Love the way Jesus loves. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, of course, was a great Christian martyr in the church. He led the resistance movement in the, early, in the confessing church in Germany against Nazi ideology. And as this was all starting in the 1930s, he began a little seminary. It was an underground cemetery. A cemetery. Well, cemeteries and seminaries are a lot alike sometimes. <laughs> this underground seminary. And um, it was kind of raising up people who were going to make a movement against Nazi Germany's theology. And uh, he proposed a rule for how Christians who were living on this campus together how they would be talking 
to and about each other. Bonhoeffer proposed that no person in this community, whether they're a faculty member or a teacher, no one should speak about another in secret, even if the intent is to do good. He said when Christians speak to one another, they should do so in the hearing of the one being spoken about. If we practiced that rule in our lives, how would our daily conversations be different? Is it truthful? Is it generous? There's one final question we can ask. Is it righteous? I love that word. You can't say the word righteous without smiling. Righteous. The word in the Greek that James uses is diakosune. It means righteousness. And it describes the experience of being able to look at each other's faces. You know how hard it is when you're, when you're in a broken relationship to look squarely in the other's eye and see the image of God. This righteousness is a way of orienting our lives toward the face of the other in love. Jesus once taught that we have to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. And what he meant by that is you can follow all the laws and all the rules of God and still never love God and never know the love of God. And so we ask is what I'm about to say about this other person or to this other person, is it going to draw me closer or push us apart? And so much of our speech, he says, reveals our inner intentions and motivations, greed, anger, envy, self-motivation. Is what I'm saying righteous? That is, is it good for the other? Frederick Buechner, one of the most extraordinary writers of our generation, just died this last week, 96. Frederick Buechner wrote, I think, at least 39 books, every one of which saved my life a million times. And in one of his books, Buechner wrote about attending a dinner party one evening when he found himself sitting next to a woman that he'd known for years. And this was a woman that he'd always valued and always admired, but for some reason he said the air between us was always bent and shadowed. So at the dinner table that night, he told this woman, he was sitting right next to her, he told her about a dream that he had actually had about her just days before. And he said that in the dream, he was sitting beside her at a dinner table just like he was sitting next to her now. And suddenly in the dream, he said, he turned to her and said, I love you. And Beekner said that he then told her something else that he didn't realize until that moment. He told her that what he had said to her in the dream was true. And he writes that she was immediately as moved as he was. And all at once, the air between them was full of healing and kindness and the peace they had hungered for. How can our words promote more light and less heat? We live in a world that is way overheated. Try three things. Ask, is it truthful? Ask, is it generous? Ask, 
Is it righteous? Amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. If you'd like more information about our church or our vision to eradicate social isolation and disconnection by practicing the faithful presence of the incarnate Christ, please visit GoStAndrew.com. See you next week.